Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is February 7th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Magnesium AF, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. Corey is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGEM, Corey. Thank you, Ken. Great to be here. And I think I need to clarify right up front, when we said magnesium AF, that was a reference to magnum PI. Now, millennials may not understand that reference, magnum PI, but I'll put something in the show notes maybe. But Corey, apparently there's another more current use of AF. There is, Ken, but I think we should probably keep the translation off the podcast. Yeah, I don't want to lose my iTunes rating. Okay, well, why don't you give us a case? All right, Ken, well, you are working in your local freestanding emergency department. This is an ED not physically attached to a hospital for the non-American listeners. 64-year-old male patient presents with a feeling of palpitations for about one week. His heart rate is 130 to 140 beats per minute, and it's irregular, and his EKG shows atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response. You want to control his rate and have recently heard some of your colleagues talking about using intravenous magnesium in addition to their typical rate control agents. Mm, magnesium. Very interesting. Well, atrial fibrillation is the most frequent cardiac arrhythmia, and patients often present to the ED with increased heart rate, chest pain, and weakness, among other presentations. Rate control versus rhythm control is a debate that has gone on for many years. The management in the USA tends to be rate control, while in Canada they tend to do more rhythm control. And we are not going to solve that debate today, Corey, are we? No, we're not. So in Canada, we tend to cardiovert patients with recent onset of atrial fibrillation, less than 48 hours. And there is this aggressive protocol out of Ottawa using procainamine and electricity to rapidly cardiovert and discharge patients with these arrhythmias. A study by... Legend of Emergency Medicine, Ian Steele, showed the vast majority of patients, and by vast majority, I'm talking, Corey, 97% were discharged home from an ED in Canada. Can you imagine? 97%. That's impressive. With 93% in normal sinus rhythm using this protocol. Now, Ken, to be fair to the Americans, this, had be this has become more standard practice around the country. I'm not sure of the numbers, but... I definitely do this for people with it within 48 hours, and I know many of my colleagues do as well. Uh, change is possible. Knowledge, translation, and action. Change does come with time. The problem is that in patients with chronic AFib or unknown time of onset and rapid ventricular response, rate control and consideration of anticoagulation therapy are the standard ED approach, given the increased rates of strokes if you try to cardiovert after the 48-hour window. Well, Dr. Anand Swaminathan and I reviewed a randomized control trial comparing diltiazem, a calcium channel blocker, versus metoprolol, a beta blocker, in the management of atrial fibrillation or a flutter with rapid ventricular rate in the ED. This was SGEM 133. The SGEM bottom line was, the best available evidence shows that diltiazem will achieve more rapid rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation than metoprolol with an impressive number needed to treat an NNT of two. Magnesium has also been investigated as an alternative or adjunct for con rate controlling patients with rapid AFib. Prior analyses have suggested that it is a safe and effective alternative strategy. However, it's not been well studied in the ED and the best dosing has been unclear. So what's the clinical question? 
Can IV magnesium sulfate reduce the ventricular rate safely and effectively in ED patients with rapid atrial fibrillation? And the reference? Buida et al., low-dose magnesium sulfate versus high-dose in the early management of rapid AFib, randomized controlled double-blind study from Academic Emergency Medicine, February of 2019. All right, let's go through the PICO. What was their population? They used ED patients older than 18 years of age with rapid atrial fibrillation defined as a ventricular rate of greater than 120 beats per minute. And I'll list the exclusions in the show notes. What was the intervention? They used 9 grams of IV magnesium sulfate infused over 30 minutes. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to 4.5 grams of IV magnesium sulfate or placebo infused over 30 minutes. Let's go through their outcomes, Corey. They had a primary outcome. What was it? Reduction of baseline ventricular rate to 90 beats per minute or less, or reduction of ventricular rate by 20% or greater from baseline. And their secondary outcomes? Resolution time, sinus rhythm conversion rate, and adverse events within 24 hours. And this is an SGEM hot off the press, which means we should have an author on the show. However, the research group was from Tunisia, and for a variety of reasons, we were not able to have one of them on the show. So I'm going to read the author's conclusions. Quote, intravenous magnesium sulfate appears to have a synergistic effect when combined with other AV nodal blockers, resulting in improved rate control. Similar efficacy was observed with the 4.5 and 9 grams of magnesium sulfate, but a dose of 9 grams was associated with more side effects. End of quote. All right, let's go through that quality checklist for RCTs. Are these ED patients? Yes, they are. Were they adequately randomized? Yes, they were. Did they conceal the randomization? Yes, it was. Did they do an ITT, an intention to treat analysis? Yes. And the study patients, were they recruited consecutively? Yes, they were. Were they similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes. Was everyone unaware of group allocation? Yes, they were. And did they treat everybody equally? Unsure here, Ken. AV nodal blocking agent was left up to the discretion of the treating physician. Oh, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. Number nine, was the follow-up complete? Yes, it was. All patient important outcomes were considered? Yes. And the final question, the treatment effect, was it large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Unsure, and it will probably be practice dependent. All right, let's run through those key results. They enrolled 450 patients into the trial with about a third in each group. The mean age was 67 years and 60% were women. Rate control agents were digoxin, 47%. And I just want to highlight that, digoxin. So half of them were getting dig. Diltiazam was about a third and beta blockers was 22%. What was their key result? Magnesium sulfate improved rate control in patients with atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response. And for that primary outcome, can you tell us about the low dose and the high dose and compare the two? Sure, Ken. The low dose, remember, that's 4.5 grams versus placebo. The absolute difference was 20.5%. The high dose, which is 9 grams versus placebo, the absolute difference was 15.8%. And when comparing 4.5 to 9 grams, the absolute difference between them was 4.7%. And I'll put a table in the show notes with the absolute differences, risk ratio, and the 95% confidence intervals around the point estimates. When it comes to secondary outcomes, the magnesium groups had faster time to resolution, low dose had a higher sinus rhythm conversion rate, and rhythm control at 24 hours. 
However, adverse events, particularly flushing, were higher in patients treated with magnesium. I'll also put a table in summarizing all the secondary outcomes. But let's get to the talk nerdy section. And I'm going to go first, and that is both groups treated equally. The choice of AV nodal blocking agent was left up to the discretion of the treating physician. This could have impacted the results. This is because the AV nodal blocking agent 50% of the time was digoxin. And it would have been a cleaner study if they had specified you shall use this AV nodal blocker and then we could consider applying it to our practices based on what we choose. So the second point directly flows from that first one, the choice of AV nodal blocker. As Ken alluded to, the digoxin was the most commonly used agent with almost 50% of patients receiving this. In the U.S. and Canada, this would likely be the least commonly chosen with a calcium channel blocker such as diltiazem or a beta blocker being the most likely. This could impact the external validity of the results. And their success rate at four hours, and remember they define success as a heart rate less than 90 beats per minute or a ventricular rate reduction of greater than 20%, was only about 60% in the intervention groups. And we covered a study with SWAMI in SGEM 133 that showed diltiazem had a success rate, and they defined it in that study as a heart rate less than 100 beats per minute, of 96% at 30 minutes. Again, we question the external validity of this trial to our experience. It's nice to have some external data that kind of adds to your anecdotal practice, because I agree with you, Ken. I've incredibly rarely had low success with diltiazem or beta blocker if necessary. Yeah, and I'm trying to reflect back on my practice, and the last time that I can remember, and of course this is recall bias, the last time I can remember using digoxin has to be, has to be more than five years ago. I can't think of a time in recent memory that I've had to reach for digoxin. So the third thing we wanted to talk about was the target heart rate. The primary endpoints for therapeutic response was a reduction of baseline ventricular rate of 90 beats per minute or less or a reduction of ventricular rate by 20% or greater from baseline. Some practitioners would be more liberal with a heart rate of let's say 100 to 110 beats per minute and we'd be happy. As stated earlier, the From et al. trial had a target heart rate of less than 100 beats per minute. Yeah, I don't have the reference on me right now, but I definitely have seen research in recent years that targeting to 100 to 110 is actually perfectly appropriate as opposed to trying to go below 100. The fourth point we wanted to talk about was the disease-oriented outcomes. The primary outcome was an objective number, but it was also a disease-oriented outcome. While it may be statistically significant, is the decrease in heart rate clinically significant? Why not have a more patient-oriented outcome like death, admission to the hospital, stroke, MI, length of stay in the ED or hospital, or readmission rate? And this also relates to the potential benefits versus the potential harms of using magnesium as an adjunct for rate control. Is the 16 to 20% absolute benefit of a disease-oriented surrogate outcome worth the increased risk of side effects like flushing and hypotension? If yes, what would the patient say? So then our fifth and final point, low-dose versus high-dose. The low-dose magnesium group had greater efficacy in achieving rate control, time to resolution, sinus rhythm at 4 hours, and rhythm control at 24 hours compared to high-dose magnesium. We wonder why there wasn't a dose response noted, or is it that magnesium sulfate has a ceiling effect and a, high, and a dose higher than 4.5 grams doesn't provide additional benefit? So those are the five nerdy points that we wanted to discuss. And if the Tunisian authors are able to listen to this, we would love to have them respond on the blog.
I, I agree, Ken. I would love to see their responses to some of these. I really don't want to make it seem like we practice differently or are judging their practice. I think we just practice differently in some areas of the world. And also, I think when we bring authors on to the SGEM Hop series, it's always really important to remember it is hard to do research. It is difficult to do research. And our hats are off. Look, I've got a hat on, Corey. I'm taking my hat off for doing the research and getting it published. So we're not being critical. And I don't want to be, yes, it's the skeptics guide, but we don't want to throw stones either. And that's why we always like to have the authors on to get a deeper understanding and understand why they made the choices they made. And there might be some really good uh, reason, which we're not aware of, that they tend to use a lot of digoxin. And so if they could clarify that or get back to us, that would be wonderful. But let's comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. We agree with the author's conclusion. So can you give us a bottom line? Sure, Ken. In patients receiving rate control for AFib in the ED, magnesium at a 4.5 or 9 gram dose may be a useful adjunct. But as you know, Ken, anytime you say something may be, you also have to say... May not. The higher dose is associated with more side effects. All right, so how are you going to resolve that case you presented? Well, honestly, Ken, I would decide to give my patient diltiazem for rate control, and within one hour, the ventricular rate's approximately 95 to 100 per beats per minute. And how about the clinical application, then? When giving rate control medications for rapid AFib, specifically digoxin, magnesium can be considered as an adjunctive agent, with the caveat that minor side effects may be increased. And what are you going to tell the patient? Your heart rate's very high and irregular. We're going to treat you with a medication that should bring it down over the next few hours. If that doesn't work, there are other options we may consider, and we'll discuss those more when the time comes. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest. And after a two-week drought, we had more winners, people who got the correct answer, than any other time in the SGEM seven-year history. So, wow. And last week's winner was Claudia Martin. She's a respiratory therapist, and she knew that if your patient was poisoned with the herbicide Paraquat, that supplying oxygen, if they're not hypoxic, is known to increase mortality. Well done, SGEMers. I mean, really, Ken, who doesn't know that? They test us on that all the time. <laughs> well, I can tell you one person who did not know that. <laughs> I did not know that, and I was like blown away. All these people knew it, and it was a lot of EMS people and RESP and TOX people. And clearly, this was a hole in my knowledge over the last couple of decades. Mine too, Ken. Mine too. All right. What's the question this week? According to the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, what is the recommended loading dose of magnesium for eclampsia? Well, if you know this magnesium answer, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com. With Keener in the subject line, the first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. There are also a couple of other FOMED resources available on this issue, and I will list those in the show notes. All right, now it's your turn, SGEMers. What do you think of this episode? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have about using magnesium sulfate for rapid AFib? Ask them on the SGEM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. And if you're one of the authors, please... Send us some feedback. Also, don't forget, those of you who subscribe to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage and get CME credits for the podcast and article. I will put the process in the show notes, and if you have any trouble, you can email Corey. Thanks for coming back on the SGM, Corey. 
You're welcome, Ken. Now I think I'm going to go enjoy the 75-degree day we have here in Roanoke, Virginia. You know, notice how he rubs my face in it. Always. Because before we started to record, I had to tell him that we had an ice storm up here just now, and he's talking about 75 degrees, and he knows that I have no idea what that means in Celsius, but I assume it's warm. I did, however, just look out the window while I was saying that, and it's pouring rain, so I, yeah, I don't know. Well, here's a fun fact I learned just recently on a, on a trip to uh, northern Ontario, that minus 40 Celsius and minus 40 Fahrenheit are the same temperature. That's where the two things overlap. And I'm like, ooh, fun fact, did not know that. Hold on, so what happens below minus 40? Below minus 40? Then, then is Fahrenheit lower? I don't know, actually. All I know is the fun fact that they cross at 40, okay? <laughs> I didn't dig into it that much. And by the way, when it's that cold, the brain's not functioning very well. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, give us the tagline before you go out and do a mountain bike ride in the rain. There we go. Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next time. Yeah.